Our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 8. We're reading from verse 1 to verse 26. In those days when, a great, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another, the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full were broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said to him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you take these words we've read, and that you seal them to our hearts, and that you give us understanding that you keep us from being hard-hearted, not remembering your works. Give us understanding, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this past week, as many of you are familiar, I had the opportunity to go with Surge, which was formerly World Harvest Mission, to work with their missionaries in Ireland. It was extremely encouraging. The days were fairly long. It was like being on a massive Christian retreat. The day began at 7.30 and went all the way to 11 o'clock sitting in the same chair basically all day. But beyond sitting in the chair all day, it was amazing to hear the reports from the field that are shared, the works of God and also the challenges to those works. 
And this group, Surge, was no different than many other groups who were serving God in foreign mission fields, seeing incredible things at times, seeing very difficult uh, things at others. But the one thing that's consistent is there is opposition. And we find this in the passage that Jesus, it's been all through the Gospel of Mark, that there is opposition to him. And so he warns the disciples about this in Mark chapter 8. Out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is something that was put into the dough that would then make it rise. It was an infection of sorts. And Jesus wanted his disciples to avoid the infection. That there was a leaven that belonged to the Pharisees and a leaven that belonged to Herod that would compromise them. They were opposed to Jesus. We've seen this over and over. In verse 11, he has just fed 4,000 And now they have questions and they want Jesus to perform another sign. And it was a a disingenuous request. Because you see, the Pharisees, Jesus didn't work according to the way that they thought God's renewal would break into the world. They read the chapter, particularly Deuteronomy 30, and saw that when God was to renew all things, there would be a heightening of the law. And so the Pharisees multiplied the prescriptions of the law, and they created their own oral tradition that Jesus critiques in chapter 7. He calls it insufficient, but because Jesus didn't get along with their program, they were opposed to him. Herod, of course, was the king of the Jews. He was a puppet in many ways for Rome, but he didn't appreciate Jesus because he thought, well, if God was going to renew Israel, the king of Israel would certainly be a part of it. And Jesus didn't have a role for him in the play. And so there was opposition for Jesus. He said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the leaven of Herod. Shows up in our own world as people simply not getting along with Jesus' agenda. Just not caring for it. External opposition. But the thing is, is that's not what the passage focuses on. Jesus does mention it, but after feeding the 4,000, Jesus meets a new kind of opposition. It was much the same amongst missionaries. The most common report of why missionaries return from the field is not external opposition. It's actually internal dissension. Fellow Christians not getting along. And what we find here in Mark chapter 8 is internal dissension amongst the disciples, battling with Jesus, not trusting him. And friends, this is what Jesus brings to us this morning. And it's extremely humbling that just when we think we are in his company and we have all kinds of proximity, being around him and being with him, following him in many ways it also becomes clear that we don't get Him. That our hearts, like the disciples, can be hard. And even though Jesus has revealed to us the secret of the kingdom, this is what He said to the disciples in Mark chapter 4. That we have the secret of the kingdom, but once revealed, it is still difficult for us to grasp. We fail to appreciate it. And so the question for us is simply this, is why do we struggle to get Him? Why is the secret of the kingdom so hard for us to get and to own? There seem to be two reasons in the passage we have this morning. The first is this, 
is that we just have a short memory. (laughs) We are prone to have a short memory. Verse 4, Jesus has just instructed the disciples to feed the crowds. Once again, a crushing crowd, just like in Mark chapter 6. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's the same question they basically asked Jesus when he told them to feed the crowd of 5,000. And they returned to that confession once again, asking the question, how are we supposed to do it? Friends, at times I'm asked about why I'm repetitive sometimes in worship services and why I like to repeat things like the Apostles' Creed. And the answer is fairly simple, that I have a short memory, (laughs) that I forget, that I don't trust. And this is exactly what is going on in the heart of the disciples, that they fail to trust, that they forget God's works, that they struggle with them. Because down again, once again in verse 16, even though Jesus has just fed the 4,000, Look what happens. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Even a shorter lapse of time this time between the feeding of the 5,000 to the 4,000, now it's the 4,000 to traveling in a boat and they realize that they have no bread and they're beginning to panic. Extremely short term in their memory. It only took me a week to be back to forget to actually lead you in the Apostles' Creed. I just realized that as I was saying it. But we forget the works of God, and we fail to trust Him as we meet new crisis. And the crisis bring up panic in our hearts and souls, and so we fail to trust Him in His character and in His covenantal promises, and so we go our own way. Several years ago, when I was first exiting college, I entered into serving a college ministry, and that required that I raised my funds. Now, that was like $24,000 that I was supposed to raise, which seems like a puny amount these days. But for me at that time, that took an incredible amount of faith, and I saw God provide. In fact, every year there was an abundance that God met my needs in raising that small amount of money. And so I remember experiencing that and noting to myself that God is the one who provides just as He promises. Philippians 4 said, And my God will provide all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I had seen that. And then six, seven years later, I was called by God to go plant a church in Washington. And as I set out on that task, there was the need once again to raise money. And I saw what God once again provide. But then, as you, if you're familiar, the world of church planting, you're working towards self-sufficiency, to be a self-sustaining church. And it's a pretty scary prospect. And I was working with an organization that did not have a ton of capital, and we didn't have a lot of resources, and there were not people who could write big checks. And so every year, especially living in a culture where you had about 20% turnover, finances were a scary thing. And I remember one fall calling my treasurer just to check in and hearing the report and feeling this sinking feeling in my heart. Oh, goodness, it's over. It's done. There's no recovering from this. The wrong people moved this summer, and it's not coming back. The budget is finished. 
will have no paycheck. And I began to conjure in my mind all the schemes that we can work with the budget and what we can cut and slash and how we can make it work. And the treasurer knew that I was panicking, said something to me, which I didn't greatly appreciate, and then the real heart of it came out. It's not your paycheck that's on the line here. And that's what it was about, is fear, the fear of failure, the fear of not being able to provide. And despite all the past experience of my life where God has been faithful to fill His promises and to give what was needed, in that present crisis, I was unwilling to believe it. Friends, it's a short-term memory that plagues us. And Jesus asked the disciples the questions. If you look down in chapter 8 and verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? And those questions are to us those who've experienced God's faithfulness and seen His grace and activity in our lives to save us from our sins, to meet all of our needs, to continue to sustain us in the Christian life, that when we meet crisis, when we meet moments of need, will we remember? And friends, it's important for us to build up that bank of memory of all the things God has done for us. And it's not simply a cognitive exercise. Because what this is to translate into is to translate into prayer. That Israel has a great tradition in the Psalms of remembering God's wonderful and merciful acts. That is part of why we read Scripture. And they were remembering those historical things, not just for the sake of history. It was for the sake of a present crisis. This is God, and this is how He dealt with us faithfully in the past, and this is God, and this is how He will deal with us faithfully in the future. And friends, so build up your memory bank for that purpose, to bolster you in prayer, to say, yes, God, in my present crisis, you will act in the future as you have in the past. That's what Jesus wanted from the disciples, and that's what the disciples were so struggling to do. And we have to overcome our short-term memory or we look rather foolish in that humble place like the disciples, experiencing all the grace of God and yet turning back and turning back. So we have short-term memory. But the second issue as to why we struggle to get Jesus is that we simply don't like weakness. The disciples asked the question, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? If you turn back to chapter 6 and verse 37, they ask a similar question. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? How are we supposed to do this? You've just told us to feed 5,000 people. In chapter 8, how are we supposed to do this? You've just asked us to feed 4,000 people. How are we to accomplish this? And the thing is, is that the disciples didn't have the resources, and they specifically didn't have the resources because Jesus told them not to take the resources. Flip back to the beginning of chapter 6. In verse 8, 
Jesus charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Do you feel the disciples' frustration? Jesus takes their resources from them. He strips them of their supplies, and then he asks them to supply a massive crowd with food. Jesus was pressing them into the place of weakness where they would have to trust him, where they would have to look to him in their need. And friends, this is the feeling that we don't like. That fall when I discovered our finances were in disrepair in the church, I didn't want to return to that place of weakness. For three years, I had worked hard to see our finances and our budget at the church be healthy and for the church to be growing. And then out of my control, people moved. And so suddenly things seemed to be just breaking apart. And I didn't like to return to that feeling once again to be in need, to have to be on my knees in prayer begging God. But God likes weakness. He likes us to be in that place where we feel our need of Him, where we have to trust Him, where that is the only thing that we can do. And friends, He will strip our resources. And then He will command you to resource others. And He will do so so that His strength will be made perfect in your weakness. That's what He's in the business of doing. And that's how He advances His kingdom. That's how He does His work and accomplishes His ends and purposes. Paul knew this well as he dealt with his own bodily ailments. Well-known passage in 2 Corinthians 12. You can turn there if you like. Three times I, Paul, pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And friends, we are desperate like caged animals, oftentimes trying to resist that feeling of weakness. We want to feel competent, We want to feel like we have a plan. We want to feel under control. And God will strip us down. He will take all the vestiges of strength away from us so that we trust Him. And it's just in that place of weakness where the kingdom does begin to break through into the world. That's how He wants to work through you. And He wants His disciples to develop a long-term memory of His past faithfulness So that when weakness arises, we know that this is actually an opportunity for strength. To look to Him. Not to panic like the disciples and say there's no bread, there's only one loaf, we don't have what we need. Several years ago when I had decided to leave Second Presbyterian, it had become clear to Melissa and I for various reasons that God was calling us on. We'd always dreamed about planting a church and so it was now time 
And so we are investigating different opportunities and looking all around the, uh, the Reformed world at opportunities to plant a church in a city. And there was one very good opportunity, working with a really great team. They offered us the job. And there was one other opportunity that was with a not-so-great team, and they had offered us the job. And then there was one opportunity that was kind of malformed, and it was only about 25%, but it looked promising. And so we were flying around and visiting these different groups. One of the opportunities just fell off the radar, just wasn't right. We said no. And then this other group offered us the job, and it was really great, and on paper it made sense to take it. Wonderful team, wonderful support structure, finances were good, and we said no. We didn't think it was right. Something was off. And then all of a sudden, feeling like we were following God, we were in this place of weakness. I had initiated the conversation with Second Pres, and as a good employer, they told me how much time that I had to find a job. They would be gracious with me, but I was feeling incredible amounts of pressure. And so here I was, once again, wondering whether I was going to trust this God who had met my needs in the past, and was He going to meet them in the future? Now it felt more expensive. I had two young kids, and I had a mortgage. What was going to happen to me? And so this one opportunity that I was left with that was kind of malformed, it was moving along slowly. It didn't look like it was going to happen. It looked like things were just going to kind of fizzle out and that the, the job was not going to be there. And so one night I went full of angst to hear my mentor, a man named Tim Russell, speak on prayer. And that night he spoke about the need to repent to pray and to trust God. Very simple message, but it just struck me at the core of my being. Tim knew me in and out, and he knew what I was going through, and he challenged me directly. And so I went home that night and just confessed it all, how I was trying to control the circumstance, how isolated I felt from God, and how I really didn't think God cared, and He wasn't going to make good this time. I ended that prayer and went to sleep. The next morning, I arrived at work and received a phone call that I had received the job that I was hoping was going to open up. And it was almost humorous. A story that belonged in some kind of devotional book almost. Just how God put it together. Because He would break me first. He would take me into that place of weakness and uncertainty and asked me to trust Him with my future, that it's His. And would I have that long-term memory of this faithful God who does provide as He goes forward into the future? And so, friends, He takes us to the place of weakness. And when we oppose that, we are opposing Jesus, just like the disciples. So what does Jesus do, though? with that scraggly band of disciples that he's committed to redeeming the world through. Remember, this is his vehicle that's going to take his message to the world, and yet we can't trust him. What does he do? He's a faithful and he's a kind employer. He's generous. 
And what he does is he seeks to heal us. He seeks to open blind eyes and he seeks to clear out deaf ears. You remember the questions that he asked the disciples? Having eyes, do you not see? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not understand? Do you not hear? And do you not remember? These were the same accusations that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 4 about the Pharisees and the religious leaders and those on the outside. And now he is saying that his disciples are just like those on the outside. And yet what happens in Mark chapter 8 is Jesus is going to pull the disciples away and he's going to take them on a journey. And it runs from Mark 8 to Mark 10. And he's taking them to Jerusalem. And there are specific confrontations, three major confrontations where Jesus is reshaping his identity with his disciples, where he seeks to heal them, to open their blind eyes and to open and to clear their stopped up ears, that they trust him, that they accept weakness, that they develop this long term memory. It's a beautiful way that Mark communicates this to us. If you look at this passage, in light of those ideas of Jesus asking the question, do you have ears to hear and do you have eyes to see? What happens just at the end of chapter 7? Jesus heals a deaf man. He can hear. And then what happens in chapter 8, verse 22 through 26? Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man. But when he opens the eyes of the blind man, he touches him once and he says, do you see anything? He says, I see men, but they're like trees walking. I don't know exactly what he was thinking at that point, but his sight was fuzzy. And so Jesus touches him again. It's the double touch of Jesus. And he clarifies his sight. And friends, these are real miracles. And also they serve a parable-like function where they're telling the story of the disciples. The disciples needed the double touch of Jesus. They hadn't seen him fully. They hadn't seen him clearly. They hadn't come to terms with who he really was. And so Jesus takes them away. He takes them away to clarify his sight, that they trust him, that they learn to embrace weakness, that they develop a memory that would stave off crisis. And friends, it's the humbling thing of being a Christian is that is the road we walk. It's a continued path of deepening and opening and clarifying and seeing because we struggle to trust Him. We hold off weakness. While in Ireland this past week, I was staying about a little over a mile down the road uh, from the manor where we were meeting. It's in County Wicklow in this little town called Avoca. And one thing you learn about Ireland is everything, every building you walk into, it's the oldest in Ireland. I saw that phrase, the oldest, on almost everything. The oldest soap, the oldest dish towel, the oldest, I mean, it was on everything. The oldest tea. But walking, I oftentimes, we left the, the hotel at, um, at 7.15, 7.20 in the morning, and it was dark because of the way the sun works. And so I would walk to the, the manor and climb the hill to it, and it would be dark. 
And so I wouldn't take in countryside or see anything. And then it was rainy. Um, and so you didn't see a whole lot of things. And we would walk back at night. It was about 11 o'clock normally when we got back to the room. And so it was dark once again. And then there was one day where there was a little more light. And so I was walking up the road and I took in some of the countryside and beauty. It was kind of amazing. And then one morning, though, while walking, the sun came out. I was feeling very acclimated to Florida at that point because I was starting to shake and get jittery and all of a sudden vitamin D filling my body and I was loving it. And friends, all of a sudden while I was walking, I began to notice all this detail. I noticed paths and trails going off the main road that I hadn't seen. There was a golf course actually. It was beautiful. There were rolling green hills, you know, with little leprechauns jumping on them, just like you would think. You know, it was everything that anybody had ever seen. And when I was walking in the darkness and in the mist and in the rain those days, all those features were there. They were present. I just didn't see them. And friends, that's what the journey of the Christian life is like. It's the sun breaking through and allowing us to see the Son of God and all the reality of who He is and all of its beauty and grandeur and how He provides for us and His grace being sufficient. And that's what Jesus is taking the disciples away to do. That's the journey we're going to be on for the next several weeks. But it's what He wants to do today as well. Is He wants to open deaf ears. He wants to open and clear blind eyes. He wants to touch you twice that you clarify your sight, that you see Him, that you know you can trust Him, that you do away with your amnesia, that you do away with holding off weakness because it's a good thing. It's where you find Him. And so, let's trust Him. Let's follow Him. Let's do His kingdom work in kingdom way and believe that He'll be sufficient. That just as the enormous crowds ate the bread, and then Mark records, and they were satisfied, they'd had enough. That you can say Jesus is enough. That's the goal.